This is the Liberty and Law Podcast, where Utah Assistant Attorney General for Constitutional Defense and legal scholar Jeff Teichert offers unique insight into the relationship between law and liberty in history, politics, and American life. If you have a passion for liberty, you are in the right place. Opinions expressed on this podcast are his own and do not reflect the positions of the Attorney General or the State of Utah. Hello, friends of liberty, sons and daughters of liberty, and welcome to the Liberty and Law podcast once again. Today, I want to talk about something that is really foundational and Unfortunately, there's been a lot of effort to try to debunk it over the past 20 years or so. And what I'm talking about is the Magna Carta, signed by King John in 1215 under duress uh, from the barons who had uh, threatened his overthrow. And I've heard even you know, historians of the stature of Simon Shama, who, I mean, I love his, his uh, history of Britain. I, I have all the books. I have all the, the video uh, DVDs uh, of his History of Britain series. Uh, I admire a lot of his work, but, but he totally misses the boat on the Magna Carta. He calls it nothing more than tax relief for the landed and armored classes. And then he pulls the lesson from it that uh, there was law that even governed kings and that a king could be brought to book for violating it. Well, that is one element of why the Magna Carta matters. It's, it's a, uh, important for us to understand that Magna Carta means more than simply a concession of royal power, though it was that. I want you to understand this against the background of the culture and civilization in which the Magna Carta was adopted. Just like, you know, in in our forming of our constitution, you had to look at taxation or legislation without representation as tyranny to fully understand, you know, why some of the provisions were adopted in our federal constitution. Understanding the Magna Carta, which Simon Shama and others say is not some kind of primitive constitution. Uh, Why did the people who framed the Magna Carta and forced it on the king, why did they uh, why did they write it the way they did? Why did they put the particular provisions in it that they did? Well, in in twelve fifteen, uh, we were in the Middle Ages, and uh, in in medieval England, as you may be aware, uh, the the ruling paradigm of the time we now call feudalism. And the way this worked, I'll give 
a true example from England about kind of how how this uh, began. I mean, it existed before William the Conqueror, but it, it was substantially changed when he uh, invaded England from Normandy and what we know as the Norman Conquest. That was in 1066. So William came to England, had himself crowned king, but it was one thing to conquer an area the size of, of Oregon uh, in an age when you really didn't have, you know, quick communications, emails, telephone calls, whatever. You, you had to figure out how to govern a vast uh, amount of land and territory. And so what the king did, uh, he was he feuded out large tracts of land to people that he trusted who were loyal to him. And he didn't just grant it to them by deed, uh, you know, as a, as a gift. This wasn't a birthday present. It came with strings attached. You had certain military obligations that went with with the land and you had certain rents you had to pay. And those were used to sustain the crown's purposes and activities. And uh, as time went on, you could actually buy your way out of military service by paying a certain amount of money, which is called scootage, but we, we don't need to get into that right now. The point is that, that people had to annually perform military service and pay rents in order to maintain their tenure in the land. Okay, so that's that's the first part of of understanding this. Well, what did what did those barons do who actually received grants from the king, land grants? Exactly the same thing. They feuded out portions of the lands they had been granted with strings attached, the same kind of strings. And this went many levels. And so it was kind of like super Amway. Everybody in the downline was supporting the people above them. And it was an incredibly oppressive system because if you didn't do the bidding of your feudal overlord, what would happen to you? He could run you off your lands, kick you out of your house, starve your wife and children. So the, it was a method of controlling people by controlling the wealth that they depended on for their livelihood. And it was a way of having a stranglehold around them. Now, in addition, uh, King William also had the Doomsday Book compiled. Doomsday means Day of Judgment. And this meant nothing more at the time than the idea that the, the king needed to know all the wealth in the kingdom. So it was an inventory. You know, 
how many cows does so-and-so have? How many acres of land does so-and-so have? How, uh, how many cow hides? I mean, it, it literally was down to the last cow hide. And this was presented to the king during a religious ceremony as if he was being presented with all the wealth in the kingdom. Well, William understood that information was power and information about particular people and what their assets were was power. So those were the two things he did, and they were both related to property and wealth. One was uh, implementing feudalism, and the other was compiling the doomsday book. So the Magna Carta came less than 200 years after the Norman Conquest. And uh, the Norman Conquest being in 1066 and the Magna Carta happening in 1215. So, uh, the Magna Carta, you have to understand in the context of the feudalistic society that England was in the grips of at that time. It was a very oppressive system. And the Magna Carta was brought by the barons against King John because he was pushing the limits of law and custom. There, there had been, had always been uh, a certain amount of leeway for the king or any overlord to... Uh, you know, to raise money and so forth. But John was, was setting new precedents. There, there were a variety of, of things he was trying to do, but he invented new kinds of little fees and taxes and, and uh, all kinds of stuff. And in fact, he got himself in trouble by confiscating church lands and those lands uh, were in the possession of the, the Roman Catholic Church, were owned by the church. And uh, he started confiscating the monasteries, abbeys, you know, the farms adjacent that supported uh, those monasteries or abbeys or, or other uh, facilities. And the Pope got upset about this and excommunicated the king. And in fact, he issued a decree that anyone who killed him would receive absolution so that they wouldn't go to hell for committing murder. Well, a group of continental nations was amassing a, a joint military force to invade England, conquer it, and divide up the spoils. And John could see that he was beaten uh, before it started. So he went to the Pope and, figuratively speaking, kissed and made up. And he agreed to make England a fiefdom of the papacy and to accept the Pope as his feudal overlord. And so in the Robin Hood myths and legends and, and other legends too, John is the, the most hated king in English history, partly because 
people believe he sold out his country to save his own neck. Well, his treaty with the Pope had the desired effect. The Pope then rescinded the execution order and uh, John became a darling of, of the Vatican. And, you know, again, there's never been a John II in England and probably never will be because he is so infamous now. So this is the same John that the Magna Carta was forced on, as you could expect. The situation being what it was, the Pope rescinded it three weeks after the king signed it. He said, this is not valid. God's against it. And so forth. So what's all the fuss about then? There's a couple of things. One is that uh, it was a concession of royal power, and the king's signature was on it for time immemorial. Secondly, the, the, the charter was readopted something like over 50 times during their history, and and in, even in the years immediately following when the, the charter was signed, it was reissued a number of times. And although John signed it under protest, his own son willingly adopted it. Now, a lot of people will say you won't see any soaring rhetoric in the Magna Carta about the rights of man and you won't find a primitive constitution what you find is a lot of stuff about corn and inheritance law and other, you know, sort of mundane legal principles. And there's some truth to that. But you have to understand that in 1215, this document, the Magna Carta, was the beginning of the end of the feudal system and thus the beginning of liberation. Now, let's go through a few of the chapters, or a few of the provisions, and I emphasize, I, I can't cover it all, it's a very lengthy document, but I'm going to give you some examples. Chapter 1, the very first provision, says, and by the way, I'm using the the um, uh, the translation by William Sharp McKechnie in his seminal book, Magna Carta, a commentary on the Great Charter of King John. And, and uh, I'm using the translation in that book. The, the document was actually written in Latin, which I can't read and and you probably couldn't understand if I could. So we're gonna we're gonna look at the at McKechnie's English translation. Chapter one, in the first place we have granted to God, and by this our present charter confirmed for us and our heirs forever that the English church shall be free and shall have her rights entire and her liberties inviolate. And we will 
will that it be thus observed, which is apparent from this, that the freedom of elections, which is reckoned most important and very essential to the English church, we of pure and unconstrained will did grant and did by our charter confirm and did obtain the ratification of the same from our Lord Pope Innocent III and so on and so on. It's a primitive religious freedom clause. The end of chapter one says, we have also granted to all free men of our kingdom for us and our heirs forever, all the underwritten liberties to be had and held by them and their heirs of us and our heirs forever. So there, there is a, now this has been interpreted and reinterpreted many times in history. Uh, people have used it both to bolster religious authority and to tear it down. Um, some have used it to drive a wedge between throne and altar, and some have used it to create a closer relationship between throne and altar. But the relationship of church and state in England was always a tenuous, um, a tenuous relationship. And the church was viewed by many monarchs as either being the rock that they had to use to govern with or a competitor for the hearts and minds of the people. So that's chapter one. Uh, we'll go to chapter nine. I'll just read a little bit of it. Neither we nor our bailiffs shall seize any land or rent for any debt. So long as the chattels of the debtor, chattels are personal property, anything except land and the things attached to it. So long as the chattels of the debtor are sufficient to repay the debt. So it's saying you can't go out and seize somebody's land because they haven't paid their debt if they have sufficient chattels to pay the debt. Well, uh, that may seem like an unremarkable provision. And why is this part of some primitive constitution? Again, remember that we're talking about a medieval society here that was feudalistic and you used your power, your economic power over someone to control them. And this gave the debtor a little bit of extra freedom. All right. Uh, chapter 12. No scootage. Now, scootage is the, the amount that you would pay uh, to be relieved of your military obligations. No scootage or aid shall be imposed on our kingdom unless by common counsel of our kingdom for making our eldest son a knight and for once marrying our eldest daughter and yada, yada, yada. So a lot of people look at that and say, well, look, even back then he couldn't impose a tax, a scootage or an aid, for example, without parliament. Well, there wasn't a parliament at this time. The common council of the kingdom was kind of a primitive parliament, I guess. It involved uh, nobility and bishops and so on. Um, it can't really, I mean, this can't literally be saying you can't tax people without representation, but it is the, the genesis of it. It's the one of the first seeds of it. And so we, we can see how important principles of liberty that even affected our own founding in the United States began to grow from Magna Carta. 
Chapter 13, this is similar to the religion clause. The city of London shall have all its ancient liberties and free customs as well by land as by water. Furthermore, we decree and grant all other cities, boroughs, towns, and ports shall have all their liberties and free customs. This restores some of the, the control and, and additional power to local governments uh, based on what the traditions and customs of those localities were. It's a, in a way, it's a, a primitive federalism provision. All right, chapter 25, all counties, hundreds, wapentakes, and trithings accept our demesne manners. Those are the manners that the king was in direct control of. Now, uh, to, to pause, counties, you know what those are, but hundreds, wapentakes, and trithings, for our purposes today, just know that those are local political units. Except for our demesne manors shall remain at the old rents and without any additional payment. So in other words, it's saying, Your Majesty, you can't just arbitrarily raise rents on us. And why would that matter? Well, because you have more security of tenure if you know what you're going to, to uh, have to pay to stay there. But let's suppose that let's suppose you could move into a, a house right now and you're renting it and the rent's a thousand dollars a month and you're six months into a, a year long lease and the landlord says, Hey, I'm sorry, I'm going to have to raise your rent to $5,000 a month because uh, things have been a little tight with me and I'm going to kick you out if you can't pay it. Doesn't seem quite fair, does it? Well, in this case, your security of tenure is a lot more safe, a lot more secure if uh, the king cannot arbitrarily raise rents. So that was a big deal. All right, chapter 28. No constable or other bailiff of ours shall take corn or other provisions from anyone without immediately tendering money, therefore, unless he can have postponement thereof by permission of the seller. All right, let's unpack that just a little bit. This is kind of a forerunner to uh, the constitutional takings clause that no, no um, person can be deprived of proper, uh, private property for public use without just compensation. So this is saying... If the constable or bailiff or other officer of the king needs to take provisions from you, they need to give you fair value immediately unless you consent to a postponement of payment. So again, this strengthens the person holding property. It's not just subject to, well, I outrank you, therefore you have to give me everything you have. No, Magna Carta says, if you're going to take my corn... You have to pay me for it. Um, so it's, it's, you kind of are starting to get a flavor here, I think, of, of what Magna Carta was about. There were times when people, um, to maintain their security of tenure 
on the land and didn't have money to pay a scootage for it. Chapter 29 says, No constable shall compel any knight to give money in lieu of castle guard when he is willing to perform it in his own person. So although you might decide to pay money instead of of doing your military obligations, you couldn't be compelled to. Why? Well, because some people may not have the money to pay their their rents and would lose their lands uh, if it was de- if a payment of money was demanded. Whereas, you know, they assuming they were able-bodied, they could go out and make um, and make. Uh, military service for the king. Chapter 39 is one of the most important because this is really a forerunner to the uh, constitutional provisions we have today that no one can be deprived of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. Let me read it to you. It's short. No free man shall be taken or imprisoned or deceased. Now, deceased season is possession of land, essentially. So you couldn't have your land, the possession of your land taken from you. So you couldn't be deprived of of liberty by being taken or imprisoned. You couldn't be deceased, so you couldn't have your property taken or exiled or in any way destroyed. So you couldn't be killed or maimed or anything else nor will we go upon him nor send upon him except by the lawful judgment of his peers or by the law of the land. Now, lawful judgment of his peers, you recognize trial by jury. What is recognized over the centuries as peerage um, has, has morphed and changed, but the, the basic essence of the due process clause is in chapter 39 of the Magna Carta, uh, which is saying, no, your majesty, you're not going to just take my lands and starve my wife and children because you think so. You have to have a reason. And so that's a very important provision and you, and you have to be able to prove it to a jury of my peers. Now you notice at the end, it says, lawful judgment of his peers or by the law of the land. Some people believe that means that you could just pass a law that somebody could have his property taken or whatever. No, it means more than that. The law of the land was the customs of the realm, and it was kind of an alternative set of trial procedures that, you know, now we we have a right to a jury trial. In those days, there were a couple of different ways you could try somebody for a crime and take their property, their life, or their liberty. All right. In chapter 52, the king promises that if anyone has been dispossessed or removed by us without the legal judgment of his peers, from his lands, castles, franchises, or from his right, we will immediately restore them to him. And then it goes on to say it creates this sort of commission of barons um, that, uh, in fact, it says it's, there are five and 20 barons uh, that would get to be the judges of whether or not somebody had been wrongfully dispossessed or removed from the land. So it puts it in the hands 
of somebody besides the king who stands to benefit by taking your land away. So again, this is not just tax relief for the landed and armored classes. And in fact, the, the, uh, the Magna Carta applies by its terms, not only to the king, but to the barons. Uh, they have to, to give all the same rights to the, the people below them in the, in the chain of feudal ascension. So Magna Carta was, as I said in the beginning, the beginning of the end of the feudal system in England. And it took us a long time to get to where we are. It evolved over centuries, this concept we have of freedom. But you can see the genesis of much of it in Magna Carta and in the events leading up to it. And ultimately, pretty much a wholesale repudiation of the feudal system. So I hope this has been instructive and helpful that you understand the Magna Carta a little better, that it was really about strengthening security of tenure in the people that actually were on the land and, and had possession of it. It was to keep their overlords from taxing them off the land or prevent, you know, preventing them uh, kicking them off the land just because I think so, or just because they won't now double the amount they're paying or double the amount of military service they're providing. So it also give, gives us a, an idea of an economic concept of liberty. And that's another important thing. And we'll discuss that more as time goes. But the idea being that controlling the assets and the wealth that you depend on for your livelihood is, a, is an important component of being a free person. And with the way our country is talking about socialism now, we really need this perspective. So I hope this has been educational and informative. I hope you'll uh, share this podcast with your friends if you think this has been insightful or interesting and that we can uh, broaden the number of people who benefit from this. Thank you again. And remember that if you love liberty, you're in the right place. Thank you for listening.